0: Hey, this is your McAlkin from Jefferson Airplane in Hot Tuna, and you are listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. Hey, look beyond, tell me what's that you see marching to the fields of Concord. Looks like handsome Johnny with a musket in his hand marching to the Concord War. Hey, marching to the Concord War. Hey, look you to tell me what's that you see. Marching to the fields of Gettysburg. Looks like handsome Johnny with a flintlock in his hand. Marching to the Gettysburg War. Hey, marching to the Gettysburg War. And it's along a long, hard road.
1: In the summer of 69, Richie Havens was a modestly successful folk singer. Well-liked and respected, an engaging nightclub and coffeehouse performer. Had a couple of albums out, solid efforts that uh, never really made a dent in the charts. He definitely looked the part, lean and bearded, dark-eyed and intense, wearing sandals and a long red dashiki. A broad smile starts, and almost splits his craggy, mahogany face just for a moment. Then it's gone, replaced by that dark-eyed, intense stare. Friday afternoon, in August of 1969, here in Max Yasker's meadow, Richie Havens assumed the role. The prophet come down the mountain, the maximum soul brother, here to gather the tribes and sing out the call to prayer. Before he sat, he held the guitar up and out, chest high for a moment, assigned to the massive crowd that the convocation was about to begin. There was a restless buzz out there while he fiddled with his tuning. Then he started slashing away at his open-tuned guitar, chinking and chiming up top over a pulsing, insistent rhythm of congas. Richie's gravelly Bed-Stuy Brooklyn voice carried across green hillsides, out over the waters, deep into the forests. Out to the highway, still packed with pilgrims, Woodstock Nation was gathering. Hey, looky yonder. Tell me what's that you see.
0: A place
1: I can get to. It's called the Bethel Woods Center for the Arts these days. Take State Highway 17B, heading west out of Monticello, New York, Mongap Valley, White Lake, Smallwood, and Bethel. We're rolling along the southerly side of the Catskills, verdant foothills, dotted with small lakes. The actual town, called Woodstock, well, <laughs> that's back a ways. On the other side of the big lake. This is Sullivan County friend. Will you head into that big music and arts fair
0: As the swift bird flies over the grasses dipping now and then to take his
1: breakfast. Like Richie Havens looked the part of the Maximum Soul Brother, Max Yazgar thoroughly looked his part. It wasn't a role for him, though. Look up square white guy from upstate New York and there's a picture of Max, pretty much who he was. Good guy, maybe a little stubborn, but in a good way, stubborn about sticking up for people. Three weeks ahead of the festival, Max had met with Michael Lang, a bushy-haired hippie, handsome, square-jawed, and intense, with a wide and easy smile. Max Yasger, self-described conservative Republican, and Michael Lang, fast-talking hippie entrepreneur, well, for some reason, they hit it off. I think he liked the fact that we were doing something we strongly believed in, against tough odds. Lang said decades later. The site, Yasker's Dairy Farm, was idyllic and ideal. 600 unfenced acres, where up until now only dairy cows roamed. It featured a vast natural amphitheater, a shallow grassy bowl that funneled down towards a level spot. And the stage goes right there. They believed in it, and they backed it up with a certified check for the sum of $75,000. With three weeks to go, suddenly the festival was back on. We're going to throw some numbers around. Uh, Before we do, keep this in mind, a 1969 U.S. dollar has the purchasing power of about $7 today, 50-some-odd years later. Four guys, partners in something called Woodstock Ventures. Michael Lang, whom we've just met, was the fast-talking public face of Woodstock Ventures. He teamed up with Artie Kornfeld, John Roberts, and Joel Rosenman. Cornfeld promoted and signed up most of the talent. Rosenman was the lawyer. John Roberts, 24 years old at the time, was the money guy. He was a trust fund kid. His family founded the Polydent Corporation. Uh, We loved learning that the legendary Hippie Fest, three days that defined a generation, was financed by sales of denture cleaner. The Woodstock weekend ended up costing John personally at least $1.3 million. Uh, that's a lot of polydent. Over the three-day weekend, John took out the sum as personal loans, with the family business put up as collateral. Woodstock Ventures was going to be about building a recording studio in the real-life, no-kidding town of Woodstock, but that had morphed into a music and arts fair in Wallkill. Then the good folks at Wallkill forced it up the road to Bethel in Sullivan County. There was about two million generated by advance ticket sales. Exact numbers are hard to find, but at least 150,000 tickets were sold at 18 bucks for the three-day pass. But they ran through most of that before a single note was played. They had invested half a million prepping the first site, an industrial park outside Wallkill, New York. With a month to go, the Walkill Town Council yanked the permit out from under them, and now that half mill was just sunk costs. Something like twice that, about 800,000, went into preparing the new site in Bethel. Crews worked day and night, but all they were really able to accomplish was build a stage and set up the lighting and sound rigs. Legend has it that a bunch of New York City anarchists... Notably, Ben Moria. Remember him from Chapter 17? Legend has it that Ben and the motherfuckers ripped down the fences, and the crowd searched in and... Hell yeah, they stuck it to the man that weekend. They made Woodstock a free motherfucking festival. Now, (laughs) that's true as far as it goes. They did bring down some fences, uh, but it was meaningless. Symbolic at best. The festival was never fenced off in any kind of real way. Nobody was on site taking tickets or collecting money. Moria has been bullshitting interviewers with that for decades. It's apocrypha, uh, just a good story, told so many times that it's become part of the canon. Here's why we know Moria's bullshitting. Uh, With less than a week to go, Lang and the rest of the Woodstock Ventures team were confronted with a choice finish the fence or finish the stage. They didn't have the resources or the people to do both. Folks were already showing up and staking out campsites, so they built the stage. That aspect, the tech stuff, the light and sound, was actually done very well. When you consider the time crunch and everything they were up against, it's pretty amazing. That was stage manager Chipmunk's doing. Chip is the guy who makes the solemn stage announcements. Come to the side of the stage. Apparently your wife is having a baby. And while it's up to you, you may want to consider avoiding the brown acid. It was filmed, of course, and the film ended up being terrific. Chances are you've seen it, and more than once. Same with us. Thing to know here is... It's not the actual festival, but rather the Woodstock movie that came out the following spring. That's what shapes most people's current perceptions of Woodstock. The movie, not the actual festival. The whole thing was recorded, too. There's about 90 hours of music and stage audio in the Woodstock archives, and most of it is now available to the public in one form or another. The first big get was Creedence Clearwater Revival. CCR was one of the highest-grossing rock acts in the world at that time, and that went a long way towards establishing some cred for Woodstock Ventures. Jimmy, Janice, Sly, The Who, the airplane soon followed. Conspicuous by his absence, Woodstock resident Bob Dylan. But his backing group, The Band, was on board, Along with a fine lineup of folk singers like Arlo Guthrie, Tim Hardin, and Joan Baez. With an announced lineup like that, yeah, they sold some tickets. Uh, But there were costs, and costs, and more costs. About three quarters of a million dollars was spent on talent. Twenty four different acts made between five and fifty thousand for the appearance. Most sets were less than an hour long. John Roberts and Woodstock Ventures eventually made it all back, and then some off the movie and the album. Key word there is eventually. It was the late 70s before all the debts and bills and lawsuits were paid off, and Woodstock Ventures finally showed a profit. Okay, back to our story. Max Yasker and Michael Lang shook hands. John Roberts handed over a check. Woodstock would take place not in Woodstock, and not in Wallkill, but in Bethel, an entire county removed from the original site. That wasn't the only thing about Woodstock. That was, uh, well, not exactly phony or false, but not exactly true either. There's a saying, the enemy of the truth is not the lie. The enemy of the truth is the myth. And the mythic and the mundane, the sacred and the profane, they all mashed up together in the mud that weekend. And fifty years have hardened that mythic mud into concrete. We'll try to set the record straight on a couple of things, uh, like we did with Ben Moria a couple of minutes ago. Uh, But some other things, we're just going to let them slide. Two points we want to hit, though. The first comes from an interview we did with Yorma Kalkinen, guitarist for Jefferson Airplane. Not so much an interview, but a freewheeling, wide ranging chat about Yorma's Woodstock experience. Yorma's take on it. Uh, key moments throughout the three days, musicians stepped up and came through with fiery-inspired performances, shows that galvanized and unified the massive crowd, and that was a big reason why Woodstock, just barely, was kept from being a muddy disaster. When we framed the question like that to him, Yorma's answer was simple, absolutely. In our opinion, Here's a spot where the myth and the reality actually wind up pretty close to one another. We weren't there like Yorma, but as we said just a moment ago, it's all archived and we went through it. Sprinkled throughout the festival were great performances from some of the great musical acts of the 60s. Big stars like The Who, Credence, and Sly and the Family Stone did what big stars do. They seized the big moment and delivered in a big fucking way. Newcomers Santana and Joe Cocker did daytime sets that kept everybody rocking and kept everybody's mind off of being dirty, tired, hungry, wet, and cold. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young debuted and came through with a transcendent performance. But, whoa, 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 we'll get to all of that. The point right here is that our main man, Richie Havens, was just the first of a series of artists who came through in the clutch at Woodstock. The second point, and this is even more important, it's why these artists came through. It's what created the space for that to happen. is personified by someone we're proud to call friend of the podcast. He's a friend indeed to all of humankind, Mr. Hugh Romney of Berkeley, California, the one and only Wavy Gravy. In an act of inspired madness that at first looked just like plain old madness, Woodstock Ventures hired Wavy and about 80 other members of the Hog Farm Commune to work the festival wavy and the hog farmers brought that do-it-yourself communal digger ethic with them first thing they did was set up a kitchen they created a space for drug casualties and freakouts to ride out the bad trip and get well again they provided security not a police force but a please force please don't do that please try this instead When they arrived at JFK, the press asked Wavy what tools the hog farmers intended to use for crowd control and security. Seltzer bottles and cream pies was the answer. While the bands commanded the stage, the hog farmers were out there with the masses in the mud, creating a space that felt safe, feeding people, keeping things going, sometimes just barely going, but going just the same. It was everything.
0: He says there's been reports that due to the wet mud beneath the towers, wet saw the audience. Our wires getting a little tight. It wants to be fed. It's gotta like slowly so move it through the, the, the towers, towers now to the we where we've got about 17 lines going uh, to the circuit. But he's and, uh, still got a little stuff, left and for you people night that night still believe that, you know, you have to to- Okay, get the fuck down! I'm going, well, the I'm going well the sun keeps shining through the pouring rain.
1: Going well the... The first casualty at Woodstock was the lineup. The opening band was supposed to be Sweetwater, but they were on the wrong side of a traffic jam that already went nine miles in every direction. Friday was mostly folk singers and acoustic acts. They were easier to set up, and as luck would have it, some of them were actually present backstage that first afternoon, like Richie Havens. So about five o'clock, four hours behind schedule, they pushed Richie out on the stage, and he gathered the tribes. He was followed by Sweetwater, they finally made it, then lukewarm sets from folk singers Burt Summers and Tim Harden that set up a gorgeous evening meditation from Ravi Shankar. Out in dark, as tabla, tambura, and sitar notes drifted out into the summer night, a misty rain formed. The crowd was still assembling out there, streaming in, setting up, and settling down. The pretty young folk singer Melanie was up next, and the rain got a bit harder during her set. The night sky began to clear some as Arlo Guthrie performed. It was clear and cold by 1 a.m. when Joan
0: Baez took the
2: stage. Oh, where have you been, my blue-eyed son? Oh, where have you been, my darling young one? I've stumbled on the side of twelve misty mountains
1: I've walked and I've Joan's crystalline soprano carried the lullabies that carried the festival to bed. Tomorrow, Saturday, August 16th, 1969, would come in like a summer day in the Catskills should. Blue skies, high clouds, and warmth to the air the sun rose and by the dawn's early light the world beheld Woodstock Nation
2: Call out the instigators because there's sun-
0: intended to be education and commentary. It'll discuss adult themes and may use some coarse language. you best, and you got it! The, in the land! DIY and Howe Studios presents... The Rock and Roll Archeology Project. Well, Music. I have a culture. technology, wow. Look at that. and rock and, roll.
2: Six of rock and roll.
0: And now, on with the show.
1: Hey, hey, diggers, welcome back to the second half of our 1969 story. Yes, it's been a while, but just know we are doing what we can to get these things out. And sometimes they take longer than they should. Add a worldwide pandemic to the mix. And well, uh, here we are regardless. Finally, finally. Yes, I know. I want to share another reason for the delay. We are working with a Hollywood team to turn your RNRA podcast into a television documentary series. Cross your fingers, tell your friends, and hope we get the green light. Also, you may not know, uh, but the RNRA is the first podcast to be presented in full high-res audio. The Mothership Pantheon Podcast Network worked with the folks over at the Neil Young Archives to create the world's first HD podcast. If you go to our website, pantheonpodcast.com, you can listen there for free if your device and connection support it. Look in the upper right-hand corner of the player to see if you are achieving full res. If so, enjoy the first podcast ever presented this way. We also want to mention the passing of the voice of rock and roll archaeology, the big booming voice you hear to open our shows. Dennis Gordon has left the building. We wanted to honor him one last time for our intro and outro bumper. Fare thee well, Dennis. Okay, so in episode 18, we began in the Mayfair district of London on a chilly January day where the Beatles played their last gig together. We caught up with the Rolling Stones as they dismissed Brian Jones in favor of Mick Taylor. The Glimmer twins, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, have matured as songwriters, taking in new influences, and are about to unleash a string of peak Stones albums and hits. Plus, they too get on stage, not on a rooftop, but for just the cameras, but in front of 300,000 in Hyde Park. And then, we decided to take you all to outer space to discuss humanity's greatest adventure so far, while showing how books, film, television, and song went along for the ride and even helped propel the moonshot. Plus, we introduced you to a few up-and-coming artists who will play more prominently in future episodes. If you haven't listened to episode 18, the first part of our story, uh, we suggest you do so before listening to this one. Now, there's your warning. Okay, that gets you up to rocket speed. Are you ready to leave Earth orbit? On to the second half of the year. Let's get into it. This is episode 19, 1969, part two.
0: Pony let the spinning wheel spin. You got no money in ya, you got no home spinning wheels all alone, talking about your troubles, and ya you never learn.
1: Ride a painted pony, let the spin what goes up must come down. Less than a month before the Woodstock gathering, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin went up, went spinning round, and came back down. They witnessed Earthrise, the first two humans to do that while standing on another celestial body. They looked back on a world riven by war and strife, being ruined by commerce run amok, where ancient hatred still festered, where fear and prejudice still held sway in far too many places. But they had a wide view now, And all the grubby, granular details were no longer visible. They were above all of that. It also can be said, these two astronauts, further from home than anyone has ever been, looked back on a world united. A realization of Marshall McLuhan's global village. An interconnected, instantaneous world. Going up and coming back down. Divided. And united. The best of times and the worst of times. Like that Dickens guy said. Meanwhile, back on Earth, satellite communications were no longer new and exotic. Commercial television and radio made common use of the technology, along with civilian aviation and ships at sea. Something big, like the moonshot or a live Beatles performance, could be broadcast globally and watched simultaneously by everyone all around the world. A new term entered the lexicon, simulcast. In October of 1969, computer scientists sent a simple message from UCLA to Stanford University using, for the very first time, a peer-to-peer digital networking system, the early Internet. In the 50-plus years since, we're going to argue, not much that's new has been introduced. That's not to say that all the improvements since then haven't been incredible. Computers are way smaller and much faster. There's lots more satellites up there, lots more microwave repeaters down here. More capacity, more senders, more receivers, more, more, more. Uh, But it's all evolutionary, not revolutionary. The basic communication and data infrastructure we still use came online in 1969. That's when they laid the foundation. Like we said way back at the beginning. A big year, 1969, one of the biggest. Something else about that year of 69 and us, uh, this is more than mere coincidence. 1969 is when rock and roll goes worldwide.
0: Flew in by Miami Beach, B.O.A.C. Didn't get to bed last night.
2: On the way to paperback was on my...
1: On June 25th, 1967, in the middle of the summer of love, the Beatles performed All You Need Is Love on a TV show called One World. It was broadcast internationally via satellite, the first time that had ever been done. At least 400 million viewers in 24 countries viewed the two-and-a-half-hour program. 22 countries participated by contributing content. Canada's offering was an interview with our old friend Marshall McLuhan. The Soviet Union and some of the Eastern European countries were going to participate, but they pulled out a week before to protest the West's response to the 1967 Seven Days War between Israel and several Arab countries. So the kids in Moscow, Prague, and Warsaw uh, didn't get to see it. Didn't matter. Just a year later, summer of 1968, the Beatles were famous behind the Iron Curtain like they were in the rest of the world. So much so that Paul McCartney wrote back in the USSR as a sly wink-wink acknowledgement to those Beatle fans in the former Soviet Union. By 1969, there was no longer any doubt. Rock and roll was a worldwide phenomenon maybe they didn't come barging in the front door like they did in new york city but the beatles had invaded the communist world too and they brought all those other rockers right in behind them now it was not easy being a rocker in budapest or warsaw or kiev you couldn't take your rubles down to the local state owned store and buy the latest beatles record you had to go underground And by underground, we don't mean the downtown indie record store staffed by music snobs who insult your taste while they take your money. Uh, We mean you had to go to the criminal underground, the black market. We admire the gutsy ingenuity these kids showed. Uh, They risked being ostracized, fired, kicked out of their school, evicted from their homes, even thrown in prison just to get their hands on a copy of Beggar's Banquet or James Brown Live at the Apollo. Rock behind the Iron Curtain will come up again, and we're really glad to start this story arc right here. It's a good one, and is going to be really important in a few years. We'll get there, but the big point we want to make right here in 1969, for the first time, we can look all around the world, and fine rock and roll. And not just in the English-speaking countries. from Europe on the North American charts, like the great cut from that Dutch band, Shocking Blue, with the singer who barely spoke English. She sang phonetically. Carlos Santana, from Jalisco, Mexico, by way of Tijuana, by way of the Fillmore West in San Francisco, had his coming-out party at Woodstock that summer. In the Caribbean, Something good was simmering to a boil, a spicy gumbo of Delta blues and New Orleans jazz and West African rhythms. It was being cooked up in a Hell's Kitchen, the gritty turbulent ghettos of Kingston, Jamaica, where politics frequently spilled over into violence and vice versa. Reggae is basically a 70s thing for most American music fans, including us. Ska, rocksteady, and reggae were already bubbling along in Jamaica and had been for some years. By 69, forward-looking musicians and fans in the UK were already hip to reggae, and some American composers, like Paul Simon, had picked up on it too. So this is just a drive by today, a quick introduction. The rise of reggae and world beat and their influence on mainstream rock. That's something we will dig into in future chapters. It's going to be irimon and get ready to lively up yourself. Once again, we'll get there point we want to make. Rock is all around the world now and that tipping point, if you will, does it's tipping in 1969 so are we surprised that perhaps the most memorable weekend in all of rock history takes place that summer back top state new york we go time to go live
0: i going to wait a while before we talked about it. Maybe we'll talk about it
2: now so you can think about it. It's a free concert from now on.
0: That doesn't mean that anything goes. What that means is we're going to put the music up here for free. What it means is that the people who are packing this thing, who put up the money for it, are going to take a bit of a path. A big path. That's no hype, that's true. They're gonna get hurt. But what it means is that these people have it in their heads. That your welfare is a
2: hell of a lot more important than the music is, than a dollar.
1: Something to know about the Woodstock film from 1970. It's all out of sequence. It's a jumble. A superbly edited jumble. The film won an Academy Award for Best Documentary, and it was also nominated for a Best Editing Oscar, a rare accomplishment for a documentary. It is nicely paced, a great piece of film entertainment. And it is also wildly inaccurate. Richie Havens goes first, and Jimi Hendrix goes last. And that's about it. Uh, The rest of the sequencing is... All over the place. Today, we provide an antithesis. To the best of our ability, using a bunch of sources, we're going to call off the Woodstock roster from Saturday afternoon on through to Monday morning in chronological order. We skipped Quill, and we skipped Country Joe McDonald's impromptu set on Saturday afternoon. We went straight to Santana for no good reason. We just wanted to play that scorching version of Soul Sacrifice. But from here on out, it's all in order, and it's all from the Woodstock Recordings. Some of the recordings are edited. The most notable one is that epic Jimi Hendrix Star-Spangled Banner slash Purple Haze medley at the end. Uh, turns out that's a splice job. Some of the Woodstock recordings were sweetened after the fact with overdubs. Uh, That's a real common practice with uh, quote-unquote live albums, by the way. But as close as we can get, we're going to do it in order and play what was played. Carlos Santana, at that time a young musical prodigy, barely out of his teens, was high as a kite when he took the stage. But he led his band through a ferocious Saturday afternoon set. Hundreds of thousands got up off their asses and on their feet, dancing and grooving. Rock and roll 101, you get their asses moving and their hearts and minds will follow. The question then becomes, where do they end up?
2: Ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome with us John Sebastian. Thank you. I don't know if you can really tell how amazing you look. But you're truly amazing. You're a whole city. And Somehow, you're something that an awful lot of us talked about eight and ten years ago in little living rooms. I have a song for you.
1: In a hilarious 2014 post, the blogger Ira Booker wrote John Sebastian's performance at Woodstock may be the moment when America attained maximum hippiedom, for better or worse. John provided sweet stoner confusion to occupy the attention of an equally baked audience that lasted about 20 minutes while the roadies prepared the stage for the blues rock outfit, the Keith Hartley Band. Uh, Their short, punchy set was followed by the incredible string band. The Incredibles didn't go over all that great. Uh, Not their fault, Uh, they just didn't fit into Saturday's lineup of heavy rock outfits. They were squeezed in to do a Saturday makeup set after being stuck in traffic all day Friday. The crowd was massive now. Folks had been streaming in all day. Uh, By the time Can Heat resumed the boogie at about 7.30pm, Woodstock Nation was nearly half a million strong. The heavy blues boogie continued with mountain a new outfit led by singer guitarist leslie west gibson les paul plugged into marshall stacks it worked then and it still works today so then the grateful dead took the stage at a great moment 10 pm on saturday night in front of a massive revved up crowd proceeded to screw the entire pooch. Their gear was so heavy, it broke the stage. That made set changes more of a hassle for the rest of the festival. They were high and goofy, unfocused, and they sounded like that too. Now, this is coming from Deadheads. We love these guys, always have. But Woodstock was not a great showing for the boys first, they broke the stage, and then they played way too long. They infuriated every act that came after them that night, especially John Fogarty and the other members of Credence. The momentum seemed lost. That's when Credence Clearwater did the revival. From half past midnight, straight through to the morning light. Late Saturday night, early Sunday morning is where Woodstock, the musical event, gets pretty incredible. Creedence didn't end up in the Woodstock film. They had plans for their own concert film, and they didn't want any distraction from that. But there's footage, and there's audio, and Diggers, holy shit... They were really annoyed by the long wait, so Credence went out there with a big chip on their collective shoulders. No, how you doing tonight? No breaks in the action, not much in the way of stage patter. They just stormed their way through 11 high-energy songs in less than an hour. It rocked. It provoked. It had some edge to it. Straight ahead and potent. The Credence set was a bracing tonic, a much-needed antidote to the dead's meandering hippie goofiness. Speaking of edge and energy, Janice Joplin was up next. Her set was highly anticipated, but it ended up being a little bit of a letdown.
2: <laughs> how are you all? I mean, uh, how are you out there? Are you, are you okay?
0: You're not... Uh... Yeah you stay in stone and you got enough water and you got a place to sleep and everything
1: Janice was gacked on smack, and she was working with the new band, the Cosmic Blues Band, and they were off a bit, not well rehearsed. So it wasn't the show-stopping, holy shit, Janice, we saw at Monterey Pop, but it was still pretty intense. When asked about it later, Pete Townsend of The Who said... Even Janice on an off night is pretty incredible. It set up the next two performances, which, in our highly subjective, not even a little bit humble opinion, were the most inspired shows of the entire festival. Hot fun in the summertime of 1969. The year of Sly and the Family Stone. At the beginning of the summer, they would put out *Stand*, a killer album. We've talked about it before. And they hit the road to support it. They'd been out all summer long, knocking audiences dead across the country. The family was ready for Woodstock. Same with The Who. They'd been crisscrossing the country all summer, too. They had their own important new album out, Tommy. At sunrise... They played the anthemic, Listening to You. Then they got called back for a pair of encores, Summertime Blues and My Generation. Saturday night had spilled into Sunday morning. Jefferson Airplane played to a sleepy, bedraggled breakfast club, the Morning Maniacs.
2: what's happening on the street, got a revolution!
0: I'm a farmer, I don't know. What we have in mind is breakfast in bed for 400,000. I don't know how to speak to 20 people at one time, let alone a crowd like this. Now, it's not gonna be steak and eggs or anything. But I think you people, have proven something to the world. So it's gonna be good food and we're gonna get it to you. Not only to town of Bethel or Sullivan County or New York State, you've proven something to the world. It's not just the hog farm either. This is the largest group of people ever assembled in one place. It's like the Ohio Mountain family and the pranksters and everybody else that has volunteered and putting their time into the free kitchens. In fact, it's everybody. We're all feeding each other. We have had no idea that there would be this size group. And because of that, you've had quite a few inconveniences as far as water and food and so forth. Your producers have done a mammoth job to see that you're taken care of. They enjoy a vote of thanks. We must be in heaven, man. But above that, the important thing that you've proven to the world is that a half a million kids, and I call you kids because I have children older than you are, a half a million young people can get together and have three days of fun and music and have nothing but fun and music, and I God bless you for it.
1: The music resumed on Sunday afternoon. Joe Cocker's set with the aptly named Grease Band was Fire. And then the rain came.
0: That's it, everybody just help get away from the towers and clear them. And look up. Like Barry says, let's think hard to get rid of it, please. No rain! 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 Keep thinking it! Keep your eyes on those towers! It's got to blow through. Try to keep yourself comfortable. And keep an eye on the towers. Hey, cut the power up here, all right? Where? Where? All right, cut the power. We're going to have to turn on some microphones for a minute. Hang in there with us. God bless you. Watch those towers.
1: It lasted about an hour. And it was another hour before the music resumed. A lot of people split on Sunday afternoon, but at least a quarter of a million hung on for that final night. Country Joe and the Fish, after making several unscheduled appearances, finally did their scheduled set four hours late. Then Alvin Lee, in 10 years after, brought the goods with a memorable set.
0: This is a thing called I'm Going Home by helicopter. (laughs)
2: Helicopter.
1: In later years, Robbie Robertson and the rest of the guys in the band said they felt like they played well at Woodstock, but they were sandwiched in between a couple of high-energy acts. The band's set was only politely received. A little anticlimactic considering they were one of the headliners going in. All right, up next, Johnny Winner. followed by Blood, Sweat, and Tears. We love these guys. We think they're one of the great acts of the late 60s slash early 70s. But like Creedence, Blood, Sweat, and Tears had plans for their own concert film and the cameras didn't even roll for most of their Woodstock set. Uh, Too bad. Now, at last, we have made it to the closing hours of the festival, where we go from the sublime to the ridiculous and all the way back around again to the epic to the definitional
0: Getting to
2: the point where I'm no fun anymore I'm sorry Sometimes it hurts so badly
0: I must cry out
1: The CSN and why, except they didn't show why, the CSN-Y performance in the Woodstock film is maybe the best moment of the whole movie. The camera stays put, showing Stephen Stills in the foreground, leading David Crosby and Graham Nash through a spare, unadorned version of Sweet Judy Blue Eyes. In the film, they split up the view. They zoom in and zoom out, but they don't change position. They keep the camera right there. The feel is quiet and still. It wasn't planned that way. Neil Young, being Neil Young, stubbornly insisted on not being filmed. You want to film the other guys? Fine. Don't point that thing at me. So the whole time, the camera operators stayed put. They didn't roam. They kept Crosby, Stills, and Nash in frame while keeping Neil Young out. Even when Neil wasn't on stage, like during Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, they just kept it right there. So, by happy accident, they came up with cinematography that perfectly served the song. An outdoor performance at a massive festival, but it feels close and intimate. Did the crowd at Woodstock experience CSN&Y like that? Unlikely. Again, even as we try to break free from it and tell the story a bit differently, the fact is, the Woodstock movie shapes our perceptions. While the sun came up, the Paul Butterfield Blues Band played the love march.
2: Okay, hip, two, three, four, hip, two, three, four, One.
0: Yeah, all y'all out there, if you wasn't so tired, we could all get up and just march around this whole area here be happy and stuff. Yeah, yeah. To bring little sister with you, let her march too. Everybody can march and have a good time
2: with that. Oh,
0: yeah. I said march on along, thinking it's time to
1: Oh yes I'm the Duke of Earl Monday morning with Sean Na. Ah, put that in your coffee. Two things about these guys. First, their show was great. It was high energy. Hell, they managed that. It was hilarious and kitschy and fun. The second was that Sha Na Na only got to play because Jimi Hendrix stood up for them. Jimi noticed them waiting patiently backstage for hours, along with some of the guys from Paul Butterfield's band. Chipmunk and Michael Lang asked Jimmy if he wanted to go early on Sunday morning, right after CSNY. They would bump the last two acts. No, let them play, Jimmy said. They've been waiting all night. They deserve the chance. It was the only concert Jimmy ever played in the morning. Maybe 30,000 remained to see it. The green hills of Yasker's farm were muddy brown, strewn with detritus and debris. There was a dirty, tired exodus out of the main bowl. You can leave if you want to. We're just jamming. He said. You can leave you can stay. The small crowd that stayed to the end brought Jimmy back out for a rare encore. The final song of the festival was Hey Joe. Hey Joe. Where you
2: going, there? You gotta go there.
1: Again, we're influenced by the movie, so for us, that sublime blues jam by Hendrix is the summing up, the tired, dirty, and beautiful eulogy of Woodstock. It took Max and a few kids who stuck around months to clean up the farm. Today, honest to goodness, rock and roll archaeologists comb through those fields, dig through layers, and uncover artifacts. Bethel Center. On the site of Yasger's farm is now an archaeological dig and a museum, complete with a performing space, a visitor center, and a gift shop. When we began this whole joint about Woodstock, we said the mythic and the mundane all mixed up in the mud that weekend. Nothing along the way has changed our minds about that. Sly and the Family Stone and The Who both gave us a look ahead at something that will largely define rock in the 70s, the modern arena show. But keep it right here for now. If we were out there today, hot fun in the summertime in upstate New York, if we were out there digging in Yazgar's dirt like it's Pompeii or a Mayan pyramid, if we were bringing forth artifacts, what would we ask those artifacts? We asked this place. We'd say, Show us what it was like. The the movie showed the power and glory on the stage. Listening to you, I get the music. It also showed the crowd, along with squalor and misery that was uh, only a few clicks away from what you'd see in a refugee camp. Right behind you, I see the millions. We'd ask them... How the hell did you manage to keep it from going completely fucking sideways? It could have been really bad. That question, by the way, is a tough one. And we will ask it again with a slightly different emphasis in a little bit. I get opinions from you. I get the story. We gave you part of the answer. The Hog Farm and Wavy Gravy saved the day. Long live Wavy Gravy, an American original. A love revolutionary. And there were musical acts that definitely stepped up and met the moment. And yes, thunderclap Newman, there was something in the air. A spirit of cooperation and grace. Max said it. Peace and music and nothing but peace and music. That spirit was at Monterey in 67, briefly in Haight-Ashbury that summer... It flickered in different spots around the world in 68 and 69 and it showed up at Woodstock where it might have struggled, but it managed to stay lit for three days like a candle in the rain. We've talked at some length about the Beatles and how they kept changing the conversation about what was possible for a rock band in the studio. Revolver, Sergeant Pepper, Abbey Road. We've also talked about the commercial demands of a music career. Most of us mere mortals have to walk a certain line between edgy creativity and putting out a product that might actually sell. From the beginning and all the way through to their breakup... The Beatles didn't just cross over that line, they obliterated it. Uh, There was no line for them. They just went ahead and excelled at both. Their best albums, Revolver, Pepper, Abbey Road, cheerfully and confidently succeed as both art and commerce. Very few acts pull that off. All this is to set up what was remarkable about the Rolling Stones. In the fall of 69, as the Beatles drifted towards dissolution, the Stones snatched away the crown. And what did it for them was their live performances, especially in America. The Beatles redefined rock albums in the late 60s. As the decade closes out, the Rolling Stones will redefine rock concerts. And for second-generation rockers, for the 70s and 80s kids, the rock concert experience is what pulled us in. That was rock and roll. That was the Rolling Stones' contribution. They redefined and reinvented the rock concert, changed the conversation about what was possible. This is David Shumway from his 2014 book, Rockstar. The Beatles' celebrity was almost from the start their subject as well as their object, and they
0: approached it and managed it with their warholian consciousness. They managed their music in the same way and became concert dropouts. By contrast, the stones were primal and natural performers whose music seemed to
2: thrive even to exist in contact with the audience.
1: Early on, the stones identified themselves in terms of the Beatles. They were the anti Beatles. It wasn't really deliberate that they were actually on very friendly terms with the Beatles. We saw back in Chapter 12, the Beatles helped the Stones get discovered and signed and provided them with one of their first hits. It just kind of worked out that way. It was good hype, a way to get noticed. At the suggestion of their manager, Andrew Lou Goldham, the Stones wore the black hat. Two years of lurid headlines as they fought their drug cases in London courtrooms only served to cement that image. So being the bad boys was fine. It worked. It was even true to some extent. But the Stones were still defining themselves in terms of another. In 69, the Stones forged their own identity at last. They put out a great studio album at the end of the year, Let It Bleed. As great as that album is, it was on stage where they earned the moniker The World's Greatest Rock and Roll Band that year. It started in L.A., summer of 1969, newly minted Stones tour manager Sam Cutler got a short-term lease on Stephen Stills' mansion in Lowell Canyon. Mick and Keefe held court there, along with Mick Taylor. They wanted to keep an eye on the youngster, and Keefe's new bestie, Graham Parsons. In keeping with a practice they'd established over the last couple of albums, The Stones recorded basic tracks for Let It Bleed at Olympic Studios in London. Then Mick, Keith, and producer Jimmy Miller would add overdubs and mix down at a studio in Hollywood. Once Let It Bleed was finalized, the Rolling Stones started rehearsing for their first tour of America since early 1966. The October rehearsals mostly took place in the basement of Stills' mansion, and they were bad. Like really really bad so bad that a lot of the staff and crew were freaking out but the stones got it together just barely in the last two sessions and sam cutler deemed the circus
0: ready for the road it was uh, such a privilege you know to listen to the stones getting their music together it was rough but it was ready, you know, supremely vulnerable and so very mortal. The music felt as if it might fall apart at any moment, yet it struggled and fought its way to a wonderful cohesion and vitality. Yeah, seeing the Stones getting their music together was like watching a baby being born. It was messy, but somehow it was miraculous. And most importantly, it lived.
1: Right around that time, Sam also realized to get these guys to bring their best... He needed to lay down a marker. So, at the warm-up show at Colorado State University on November 7th, 1969, Sam introduced them. He seems to be ready. Are you ready, ready? for the
0: next round? We'll show
2: it for the July. So are you ready? Well, the biggest round
0: of yeah, the biggest world, world, in world, world, world in New
2: York.
0: The first round for a year, the world in
2: school, the Rolling Stones. The boys are the world out in the world.
1: Sam trotted that one out back in July at the Hyde Park concert, and Mick wasn't crazy about it. He felt that level of hype was a bit much, and he let Sam know that. (laughs) But Sam ignored him and used it again in Colorado. It became the standard intro for Stones Concerts, from that day forward, the world's greatest rock and roll band. Like the Beatles, they benefited tremendously from being in the right place at the right time. On their 1969 tour, the Stones took full advantage of new developments in live sound, stage lighting, promotion, and ticket sales, travel and logistics, and so on. It was only a month. Uh, Compared to the corporate-sponsored Leviathan tours the Stones and other top rock acts would embark on in the decades to come, Stone 69 was a thrown-together seat-of-your-pants operation. Kind of like when you compare Woodstock to a modern-day festival. But it worked. In fact, it succeeded wildly. Our favorite grumpy curmudgeon, Robert Criscow, called the Stones' 1969 tour of America the first mythic rock tour. Other observant writers and critics have made similar declarations.
2: satisfied
0: now sexually. On to uh, uh, how about philosophically and financially? Financially dissatisfied. Uh, you know, uh, sexually satisfied. Philosophically, trying.
1: From Stephen Davis's book, God's Almost Dead.
0: October twenty seventh, nineteen sixty nine. The Rolling Stones held a press conference at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel to announce their tour schedule and to counter attacks in the press. When it was reported the Stones would take home a million dollars from the tour, the influential San Francisco columnist Ralph J. Gleason scolded the band for high ticket prices and general
1: arrogance. Recalling the good vibes in Hyde Park, Mick Jagger parried by offering to play a free outdoor concert in the Bay Area after the tour.
2: Hey, baby. What's in your eyes? A sword and flash it like airplane bites You fill my cup, babe That's for sure Must come back
0: For a little more
2: you got my heart
1: There's a lot of natural beauty in California. Yosemite in the High Sierra, Big Sur in the Lost Coast, Joshua Tree in Death Valley. We California natives are justifiably proud of our many wild beautiful places. Altamont Pass is not among these places. It's the path of Highway 580, a noisy concrete ribbon through scrubby brown hills. The 580 connects the Bay Area with the Central Valley of California. The nearest town of any size is Tracy, a bedroom community that barely existed in early December of 1969. Even if you've never set foot in California, you've probably seen images of the Altamont Pass wind farm. It was built in the early 1980s, and they've expanded it a bunch since then. It really is the only noteworthy thing about Altamont. It's a good place to put some windmills. Throughout the year, especially in the dark winter months, a hard, cruel wind blows
2: steadily through the pass.
1: Film nerds as well as music nerds here at Rock and Roll Archeology. span So we're going to reference the 1950 Japanese film Rashomon, directed by the great Akira Kurosawa. Rashomon is a commentary on how people perceive and remember things. In the movie, everyone sees the same event, the violent death of a samurai. And afterwards, everyone recalls it differently. And all of them are telling the truth their truth. Because we don't see things the way they are. We see things the way we are. In this time, in the winter of 1969, no windmills and not very many people lived here either. But in the days leading up to December 6, young people from near and far are converging on this unremarkable patch of dirt as cold winds whip through Altamont Pass. As a night falls and the wind kicks up, we have a story to tell that is best described as an American Rashomon.
0: This is Stefan Ponick, KSAN Radio, San Francisco. Well, the Rolling Stones tour of the United States is over. They wound it up with a free concert at the Altamont Speedway for more than 300,000 people. There were four births, four deaths, and an awful lot of scuffles reported. We received word that someone was stabbed to death in front of the stage by a member of the Hells Angels. Nothing's confirmed on that. We were there. We didn't see it but we did see a lot. We want to know now what you saw. Our phones are open, we'd like to hear from you. What was the Altamont free concert like? Woodstock had been the long-deferred festival of life. So said not only Time and Newsweek, but world-weary friends who felt the new society of warning, half a million strong, stoned, and happy on that muddy farm north of New York City. And so when the Rolling Stones announced their own West Coast free concert at Altamont near San Francisco, I had to go.
1: That's the 60s historian Todd Gitlin in his book, Years of Hope, Days of Rage. We've quoted Professor Gitlin a bunch of times now. Augustus Owsley Stanley, the bear, LSD cook extraordinaire, sound man for the Grateful Dead. The bear was there too. It was like a moonscape of crushed auto bodies. It was the actual arena in which they had held all these demolition derbies. I thought this is the worst possible place to hold something like this. And I realized that if you took acid at this show, you were going to have a trip that you didn't really want. so, yeah, we're film nerds, too. And as such, our perceptions of Altamont are largely shaped by a film. That would be the 1970 documentary Gimme Shelter, produced and directed by Albert and David Mazels. For the sake of clarity in this section, we'll reference the Gimme Shelter film as the Maysles film or the Maisels documentary. Okay, back to the story. Around noon, as Santana opened the show, a rolling phalanx of Hell's Angels surged down the hill towards the stage. Their choppers charged through the crowd as people madly scrambled to get out of the way. Two of the bikes carried Graham Parsons and Bernie Ledden of the Flame Burrito Brothers. Down at the bottom of the bowl, Bernie looked back at the hole they had just made in the crowd. He said to Graham, You know, we just pissed off 300,000 people, right? Well
2: you heard about the ball star. it's not one of those. Talking about the
1: midnight Perspective is informed by our loves and by our hates, by our prejudices and by our decencies. Perspective can also be a simple function of where you happen to be standing when the shit goes down. Set and setting, as Tim Leary would say. That's what makes good trips good, and what makes bad trips really fucking bad. Woodstock had been moved several times before they settled on the verdant peaceful hills of Max Yasker's dairy farm as a site. But they had about 20 days to get it ready. At Altamont, they barely had 20 hours. They built a stage out in the middle of nowhere and hoped for the best. Like any decent person would be, we are outraged by the thuggish behavior of the Hells Angels that day. But that didn't just come about. It didn't occur in a vacuum. The deadly lack of concern on the part of the Altamont team, uh, you see it in the middle third of the measles film. The phone call at lawyer Melvin Belli's office. Uh, The call is jaw-dropping. Important concerns like security, food, water, sanitary facilities, parking, and access to adjacent properties are glibly brushed aside. Bullshit reigns. You can't help but think, uh, there's no way this is going to work. Why the hell doesn't somebody just pull the plug and cancel it? Good question. Keep it in the back of your mind as we move through the story. There was no defined backstage area. The only thing separating the crowd from the performers was a single piece of twine, and even that flimsy imaginary barrier was gone by the time Jefferson Airplane took the stage. This is Saul Austerlitz from his 2018 book, Just a Shot Away. Four or five plainclothes Alameda County sheriffs stood around backstage, their weapons in their holsters. After intervening in one of the early fights between the Hell's Angels and fans, they took note of how thoroughly outnumbered they were, and thereafter ceded the field to the Angels. It's
2: no matter with anybody in particular. you got to keep your bodies off each other unless you intend love. People get weird, and you need people like the angels to keep people in line, but the angels also, you know, you don't bust people in the head for nothing. So both sides are uh, fucking up temporarily. Let's not keep fucking up.
1: Marty Ballin of the Jefferson Airplane got knocked unconscious by an angel. Marty came to, decided to go after the prick, uh, the biker they called Animal, and Marty got knocked out again. But here is what's really ominous about that Jefferson Airplane clip from the Mazel's documentary. As Grace Slick tries to settle the crowd, her pitch to the audience is, be cool so you don't provoke the Hells Angels. Let's just stop fucking up. She actually both sides it. We don't want to be unfair to Grace. She had to have been terrified, She's just doing her best in an impossible situation. But when she both sides it like that, she abdicates the moral authority. She gives away any pull or sway that the performers might have had on the Angels. Just a few songs into the second set, we see the performers have given up. The cops, too, threw their hands up and walked away after an hour or so. The concert organizers were scared as well everybody's on their own. The only unity at Altamont was among the angels. Any kind of attack or perceived slight against any one of the angels is an attack on all of them. Where we go one, we go all. If you got too close to one of the angels or somehow pissed one of them off, they'd clock you with a motorcycle chain or a sawed-off pool cue. Every song, a couple more kids would go down hard and get gang-stomped. All through the day, the hellish wheel kept turning. The one respite came in the early afternoon during the Flying Burrito Brothers set. The burrito's lazy, loping country rock with Graham Parsons' easy southern charm got people to chill out and sit back and listen. But the burrito set just slowed things down a little. As soon as they were done, it was back to the mayhem. The casual brutality dished out by the Angels sent new waves of panic rippling back through the crowd.
2: Let's have a party, let's have a good
0: party.
1: Miss Pamela had seen enough
0: teetering on my platforms I defiantly stuck out my thumb determined to escape the boorish angels thugging around like bossy cops I heard the stones had hired them for protection why? Wasn't this event supposed to have the spirit of Woodstock's peace and love vibe?
1: That quote is from our good friend and podcasting comrade, Miss Pamela de Miss Pamela, among other things, wrote a great memoir chronicling those times called I'm with the Band. Buy it and read it if you want to be cool. Around the same time, Wavy Gravy and the Hog Farm crew decided they'd seen enough too. And they started packing up. As we left Woodstock, we asked, how did they manage to keep it together? What kept the festival from turning into an utter disaster? Well, Wavy did, along with his crew, of course. The hog farmers spread some social lubricant, if you will. They took care of people and encouraged people to take care of each other. (laughs) None of that to be found at Altamont. Just Hell's Angels throwing sand in the gears and sending kids to the
2: hospital. I don't know who's back that strong. Maybe find out before long.
1: At least 850 people were hurt by the Angels that day, some of them very badly. That number is based on police reports, local hospital admissions, and eyewitness accounts. A lot of pain was dished out that day, uh, but the crowd was huge, at least a quarter million, so most perceived the violence as distant, uneasy, bad vibes. But even at a safe remove from Angels' run amok, Out in the crowd, it was bad trips, bunk drugs, fights and arguments, no bathrooms, no water, and a long, long walk back to the car. Nothing was being addressed. Once again, everybody was on their own. So the bad vibes spread and spread across a couple hundred thousand people over and over, and now you got a lot of bad mojo going around. The stage was low. The hill was steep. The music kept getting interrupted. The Grateful Dead canceled at the last minute. Cold and pitch dark out at just five o'clock in the afternoon. As night fell, a lot of people, at least half the crowd, just said, fuck this, like Miss Pamela did, and left early. The rest decided to dig in and get what they came for. You've put yourself through it. You packed into a car and drove hundreds of miles, then hiked in for hours. Fuck it. Get what you came for, the Rolling Stones in concert, for free, under the California stars. Two hours after nightfall, the Stones took the stage in a blast of harsh light. As the Rolling Stones, who played well that night, despite everything, started churning through the early part of the set some of these diehard fans, pissed off, tired of watching their friends get hurt, started challenging the Hell's Angels more directly. For the first time all day, the Angels were pressed back. Some of them took hits, got knocked down, a bike caught on fire. In the Mazel's film, in between songs you can hear crowd members taunting and cursing them. The Angels regrouped and responded to this challenge to their supremacy. With a whole new level of savagery. They just went after anybody, dealing out terror and injury at random. This is the part of the Mazels film where the stones stop playing and you hear Mick Jagger sounding small and helpless, pleading with the crowd.
0: I'm No, if those cats cut if you people we're splitting man if those cats don't stop beating everybody up inside i want them out of the way man wow. hey, i don't got, like hey, you know you can see what was
2: happening man? no you couldn't see anything where well, it's another it's another scuffle it was a... there's the angel right there with the knife where's the gun i'll roll it back and you'll see it against the girl's crocheted dress right there isn't it
0: he pulled out a gun. Huh? He did? Yes. The Hells Angels took the gun away from him. One of them has it now, he showed it to me. Uh-huh. And uh, they uh, proceeded to put him down on the ground and start kicking him. You know? And he has a couple stab wounds on his back and one uh, over his ear. Fox, Fox, tried Fox. to keep him alive, and uh, when we got here, the doctor checked him out. You know, he pronounced it. him uh, dead. Die. No. They're gonna do everything in their power. But he no. can't hear his heart. Now, don't oh, no. Oh. Don't worry about it. Don't oh. worry about it. I'm gonna
2: put him in this worldly bird I'm to take
1: with- him Eighteen years of age, Meredith Hunter, a black kid from Oakland, was at Altamont with his white girlfriend Patty. They came together to hear white guys from London play music drawn from the well of sorrow that is the black American experience. He went by Murdoch, a street name for a wannabe street hustler. He was an okay kid, not exactly most likely to succeed, but there was no meanness or darkness in Murdoch. He had a criminal record, but it was small-time stuff. Just one more lost, lonely teenager. Murdoch was one of those diehards out in the crowd. He'd stuck it out, put up with it, and he wanted down front. He wanted to see the stones. Down there, near the stage, you needed protection. That much was obvious. So he headed back to his car, got the long-barreled 22 out of the trunk. Murdoch stuck it in his coat side and waded back into the crowd. Patty followed in his wake, trying in vain to talk some sense into him. Down there in the hellish maelstrom that swirled in front of that low-postage stamp of a stage, Murdoch made a terrible, deadly mistake. He was angry and scared and tweaked on meth so hard he was grinding his teeth. And he pulled a gun at a crowd. Not just any crowd, but a crowd of Hell's Angels. A volatile crew under any circumstances, who were now being pressed hard by the crowd, scolded and berated from the stage, and as a consequence, were even more reactionary and violent than usual. It's about two seconds of film. That two seconds was enough to get Alan Pissarro, the Hells Angel who stabbed Murdoch to death, acquitted of murder charges. The jury found it was in self-defense. And it was very arguably self-defense, at least at first. With terrifying speed, like we said in less than two seconds, Pissarro took Murdoch down. Then, with deliberate, brutal efficiency, the rest of the angels proceeded to stomp the poor kid, finishing him off. But it was just piling on. The knife wounds from the initial attack were more than enough to kill him. In his testimony, the physician who attended Murdoch put it this way, even if the stabbing had occurred in an operating room with a staff standing by, they still wouldn't have been able to save him. Pissarro and Murdoch never should have been there in the first place. A long chain of negligence and bad decisions got them to that point. Oh, there's plenty of blame to go around. Uh, Much of it has to fall on the organizers of the concert, the loose collective of business hippies in the Grateful Dead's orbit who set this thing up and hired the angels to serve as security. From the Rolling Stone magazine article published January 1970.
0: Altamont was the product of diabolical egotism, hype, ineptitude, money manipulation, and at base, A fundamental lack of concern for humanity.
1: In our view, the stones held up their end. They didn't cut and run. Through terror and violence, they stepped up and did what they came to do. They played and they played well. It wasn't enough to say poor Murdoch, but it very arguably kept things from being even worse. notes had barely faded when the stones, Sam Cutler, and a few hangers-on piled into a dangerously overloaded helicopter and got the hell out of there. Back at Altamont Speedway, some of the angels started a bonfire and continued to party. Every so often, some clueless kid would wander up out of the darkness and try to join the fun, and they would learn the hard way that the bonfire party was an angels-only event. All throughout the night, as they tore down and packed up, the roadies and stagehands could hear the cries of pain and fear.
2: Well, I followed up Station where a suitcase in my hand. Yeah, I found a station where
1: a suitcase in my hand. As we've seen, Miss Pamela bailed out early. She snagged a ride back to the city and made a beeline for their hotel.
0: I was seriously bummed out about my beer-splattered vintage dress when I arrived at San Francisco's stately Fairmont Hotel and called Mick on the hotel phone. Please come right away, he said in a strained, tremulous voice, giving me the room number. Something horrible has happened.
1: When she got to the room, Mick was subdued and quiet, on the verge of tears. It was clear to Miss Pamela that he was badly shook by the events of that long, awful day at Altamont. Sam Cutler had a brief tense exchange with Mick Jagger. After some back and forth, it was agreed that Sam would stay behind and try to deal with the aftermath, while the Stones themselves would get the hell out of Dodge. Early the next day, the Rolling Stones flew back to England. It would be 1972 before they came back to America to play again. There's a tag out there that gets used a lot. Altamont marked the end of the sixties. Eh, maybe so. Ourselves, we tend to agree with Robert Christgau's more nuanced view of it. Altamont provided an extraordinarily complex and visceral metaphor for the way things of the sixties ended. All the symbols were marshaled and the crowd turned out less to have a good time than to help make counterculture history. The result was that the counterculture in the form of rock and roll turned back upon itself. No one knew how to deal with the spectacle, that from the moment it began, contradicted every assumption on which it had been based, producing violence instead of fraternity, selfishness instead of generosity, ugliness instead of beauty, a bad trip instead of a high. What do we make of all this? What lessons, if any, can be learned? It's hard to say. Woodstock was also thrown together at the last minute. But it just barely managed to work. We talked a little bit about why it was good luck as much as anything. There were Hell's Angels at Woodstock. They showed up on Friday and created a ripple of concern when they did. They were absorbed by the mud and by the crowd and pretty much never heard from again. It's also worth pointing out the obvious here. Large gatherings are inherently dangerous. Earlier that very same year, a car went out of control at a drag race in Covington, Georgia, and killed 11 spectators, five of them children. It was widely covered, but few, if any, proclaimed at the end of drag racing. We are quite certain our friends in the UK and Europe have some appalling stories to tell about violence and fatalities at soccer matches over the years. But timing is everything, and Altamont was in December, so it's the last chapter in the story of rock music in that year of 69. And as writers like Saul Austerlitz, Robert Criscow, and Joel Selvin, and the Rolling Stone staff, and others have pointed out, it was an outlier. It was antithetical. Three. started with the Beatles on the rooftop and went from there with a few side trips to a splendid sunny day with the Rolling Stones in London's Hyde Park. Men on the Moon and the muddy marathon of Woodstock. These events and more importantly the massive worldwide media coverage they received these events seemed to communicate that maybe something else was possible. Maybe humanity didn't have to keep racing towards oblivion. Perhaps a better world was drawing near. But in dark December, with just days left to go in the year, the tragedy at Altamont snapped everyone back to hard reality. Good intentions and hippie idealism aren't enough. Someone has to plan and organize. Someone has to be responsible. Otherwise... People are gonna get killed.
0: wash some whiskey in your water, sugar in your tea. What's all this crazy question you're asking me? This is the craziest party that could
1: is of more than passing interest to us that all of these events are highly mediated our perceptions of them are shaped not by experience but by re-experience by recreation we were fortunate enough in the making of this long sprawling two-part chapter to find and interview some primary sources people who were actually there ken mansfield of apple records rolling stones tour manager sam cutler Wavy Gravy, Yorma Kalkinen of Jefferson Airplane, and, of course, the lovely and very astute and observant Miss Pamela DeBar. But for the most part, like everybody else, we fall back on the mediated reality. Books, Internet archives, and, most of all, TV and films. The Let It Be film, the Woodstock documentary, the Maisel's film Gimme Shelter, and other sources you can find in the show notes. We said way back at the beginning, in Chapter 2, that rock and roll and television grew up together, that they are intertwined, and it's hard to tell where one ends and the other begins. Here, at the end of 1969, we are 15 years down the road from Bill Haley in the movies and Elvis on television. In that time, the visual media Film and television have carried rock and roll all around the world and brought it back home again. Woodstock and Altamont are burned into memory in large part because they were widely covered in the media and there were important impactful documentaries made about those events. In recent years, since 2010, new accounts have been published and aired. We've taken those in too and we've had to rethink some things. There's more about all our sources in the show notes. We're rock and roll fans, not media and mass communication theorists. But along the way, we have found the work of some of these theorists to be really useful in understanding music, culture, and technology. So we've made a few side trips along the way and met people like Marshall McLuhan, Andy Warhol, and Akira Kurosawa. And we've parsed some of the ideas they put out in the world. We'll restate the point Kurosawa made so brilliantly in Rashomon. People see what they want to see. People seek the account that reinforces their view. The story that props up their prejudices or the story that speaks to their decencies. For those of us who look for hope... The Woodstock myth, codified in film, shows us how shared hardship can inspire cooperation and provide breakfast in bed for 400000 Altamont is the dark reverse image of the Woodstock experience, showing us how shared hardship can inspire a cold shoulder and take us, with terrifying speed, down the hill into a maelstrom of violence and even death. Like Robert Christgau said, these are visceral and powerful metaphors. Back in earlier chapters, specifically chapter 9 and chapter 15, we said that when it comes to discussing the 1960s, conventional storytelling is just not adequate to the task. This is especially true of 1969 with its mad kaleidoscopic rush of events. So much as we'd like to, We can't provide a moral to the story. We just can't tie a neat narrative bow around 1969 and deliver it to you. We can speak our own truth and encourage you to seek out yours. We can note with sadness the opportunities that were missed. And with joy, we can relate the achievements. Our take is that Woodstock is the apotheosis and that Altamont represents the abyss. And that 1969 can be seen as an inflection point, an ending and a beginning, a change of the guard. It's the end of the first half of the first half. Rock started as the music of the post-war baby boom. Born in the American South and raised in the big cities of America, it went over to England, came back to America, and then spread all around the world. That was the first half of the baby boom. It was epic. It was amazing. And now it's done. Now, the second half of the baby boom takes over. As 1969 closes out, while it may not be official yet, the Beatles are all but done. Dylan, The Who, The Stones, CSNY, many of these 60s acts will go forward into the 70s, But within a few short years, they're going to be seen mainly as elders, pioneers, important and influential, revered even, but with their best work behind them. So maybe 1969 was the peak year, but there is still a long way to go and a whole lot to tell. And you know what? A lot of rock historians argue that the 70s were really the peak era for rock music. And we don't necessarily disagree. All kinds of new branches and offshoots and new genres will spring up all over the place. There's plenty to talk about. A new landscape. A lot of interesting new characters. Some of whom we've talked about in earlier chapters. Just a little. Kind of a tease for you. A lead-in to what's next. What's next? Everything. The rock landscape is vast now. It takes in the whole world. We're on an expedition to as many of these new lands as we can get to. We're excited about the possibilities, uh, but also feeling a little unmoored, like the old ties have been cut. Feeling like a stranger in a strange
0: land. (laughs) About the way the people are treating each
2: other, not like brothers. Lead us, take us far away from the college with the father, and the father, the deed, got some to say about the way we live today. Why can't we learn to love
0: each other and try to learn a new faith to the whole worldwide human place? It's the budget, chase, play back, relax,
1: you get back on the human I'm Christian Swain. And this has been rock and roll archaeology thanks as always for listening and we'll see you next time we'll see you in episode 20 keep up the rockin
0: sing one more time you.
2: roll archaeology is written by Richard Evans and Christian Swain produced and hosted by Christian Swain all sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson at Busy Signal Studios find all of our shows, notes and links at pantheonpodcast.com all songs can be found for purchase or streaming wherever you get your great music please pick up these amazing tracks contact us on social At Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods.
1: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football